My name is Kenta Mori. I'm the next gen pastor here at First Church, and I'm so honored to be here. It's going to be an amazing, amazing Sunday. Um, if you could just stand one more time with me in honor of the Word of God, I'm going to be reading from Romans 16 and 13. And this is in the last chapter of Romans when Paul says, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who was like a mother to me as well. And if you would just pray with me in this moment and just ask God to begin to change and challenge us today. In Jesus' name, I'm asking you, God, to not make this Sunday just another Sunday. I'm asking you in Jesus' name to allow your word and your spirit to challenge me and challenge us. Open up our hearts and our minds that we might receive the message that you have made for us. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. You see, throughout time and throughout history, and especially in modern day um, science and whatever, psychology or whatever, there have been many, many studies on the research behind creative geniuses and masterpieces, trying to understand what produces a masterpiece and what is the art behind somebody who creates masterpieces. Now, the problem is masterpieces are very subjective. What you call a masterpiece, I might not call a masterpiece. In fact, there are plenty of parents who think that their three-year-old's drawing on the fridge is absolutely a masterpiece. And, you know, they might be creative geniuses in their own right. But the masterpieces I'm actually talking about uh, and the study that these things have been about are on masterpieces that have changed the entire field in which they're created in. It's, It's artists and paintings that last years beyond the death of somebody. And so... The art pieces, whether it's art or music or writing, whatever it is, something that completely changes the field that they're created in. These are the masterpieces I'm talking about. And so what studies have shown is that these masterpieces and the geniuses behind them tend to fall into one of two categories. And surprisingly, the more known these pieces of art are, the more, uh, the more left or right they actually stand. It's very... Uh, it, Hardly any of these pieces land in the middle. And so these masterpieces that lie in one of these two categories tend to lie into somebody who is a, the first category would be somebody who does so much artwork and so much work in their early years of life. Somebody who can do a quick work, who can, who can translate and communicate specific emotions very clearly in their art. These people are known as conceptual innovators. Picasso was a conceptual innovator. He changed the art world the second that he stepped into it in his early 20s and out of nowhere shocked everybody in the art community. Picasso would average about one painting every single day, and he did it until the day that he died. And when you think about the word genius, we think about the Picassos of the world, people who comes in out of nowhere and changes everything. But the other form of genius and masterpieces and artists are known as experimental innovators. These are people who never really have a clear understanding of where they're going when they begin. And their idea is is so fuzzy when they start off. And it takes so much trial and error and so much time in between until they get to a place where they're finally pleased with what they've created. Now, a perfect example is Paul Cezanne. The symptoms of these experimental innovators are people who struggle, perpetually unsatisfied individuals. And oftentimes, their, their artwork is known after they die or when they're very, very old. And Paul Cezanne is a perfect example. He's known as the father of modern-day art. And in fact, if you talk to anybody who knows about art, they would say Paul Cezanne and Pablo Picasso are the two godfathers of art. They are the two artists who stand out above everybody else. But their methodologies to create masterpieces are completely different. 
And so when you take a look at a Cezanne picture, you'll see a handful of them. You don't just find one, you find multiple pictures of the same exact thing. And the reason is because Paul Cezanne never wanted to admit when he was done, he, he never signed, well he did sign, but he hardly ever signed his paintings because he didn't, he didn't want to say that this piece is actually completed. And it took him so many renditions of the same thing until he finally got where he wanted Whenever he had somebody come in for a portrait, he would have them come in a hundred times over and over and over until he felt comfortable with the final draft. And compared to other artists, they would have somebody come in about five or six times. He would have them come in hundreds of times because he was so unsure of where he stood. In fact, Cezanne was known for his paintings about apples. He has so many paintings about apples. One was entitled Apples. Another one was entitled Basket of Apples. Another one was a still life with apples. Another one was two apples on a table, apples and pears. And of course, you can never forget the masterpiece known as Biscuits. But in reality, it was just about apples. Like, I could literally find about two dozen other pictures of apples. We just don't have the time today. And so this is his masterpiece. This is his creative genius at work. This is how he does it. This is how he works. And, and he's known as the godfather, the father of modern art. And he's incredible. And then you look into writing and you see Herman Melville who wrote the book Moby Dick. And he wrote it when he was 32 years young. And he did it in a year and a half. And when he recalled writing it, he said, man, it took me a whole year longer than I really wanted to write it in because he's a Picasso. Mark Twain, on the other hand, wrote Huck Finn in eight years, and he considered burning the book so many times. He said, I wanted to burn the manuscript after the 400 page because I just hated the book, and he kept rewriting and rewriting the ending until he finally was happy with it. That's because he's a Cezanne. That's his art style. That's his masterpiece. Now, Beethoven and Mozart are perfect examples as well. Beethoven was a Cezanne, and Mozart was a Picasso. Incredibly, they say that when you listen to a Mozart piece, you can actually hear the effortlessness in his writing versus Beethoven when you can hear the struggle when he composes something together. Mozart was a creative genius who created all his work before the age of 35 because that's when he died, but he came in with a rush and just changed the music game completely. One of his greatest pieces was known as Don Giovanni, and they're going to play it here in a second. It was written at midnight. Check this out. This piece was written at midnight the day he was supposed to compose it and showcase it for the first time. He wrote this song in three hours. Incredible piece of just art piece. Incredible. Now, Beethoven, on the other hand, was completely different. He was known as a troubled genius. And they're going to play symphony number six here in a second. He was born deaf, struggled to create. But he, when he created, he created cultural shifting music. And this piece right here, his greatest piece... Symphony number nine, it, it, while Mozart wrote his in three hours, this took him three decades. It took him 30 years to finish this piece of music. The reason is, he's a Cezanne. That's how he works. And he's a genius behind it all. And one of my favorite, one of the greatest examples of Cezanne-level genius is, one of the most modern, is in one of the most modern-day infamous songs. It's a song called Hallelujah by Leonard Cohen. And if you don't recognize the name, I'm sure you'll recognize the song when, when they play it here in a second. But it was so understood that Leonard Cohen was a troubled artist. In fact, right here, this is his first rendition of the song. Leonard Cohen would talk about creating this piece, and he said that it was such a struggle. This was his hardest song. He was known as a tortured artist, and he would change line by line, lyric by lyric, word by word. By the end of his... 
initial writing, it took him 70 verses until he figured out what he actually wanted in the song. In fact, there's a story about this rendition where he would be in the hotel room banging his head on the floor because he could not figure out the song Hallelujah. In fact, it took him five years to write Hallelujah. And as you heard, it's a little bit different from anything that you've heard before. That's because in 1984, he tried to, he tried to uh, produce this song, but CBS wouldn't write it. He said this song is, they said this song is trash. We're not going to record this for you. So he had to go to a smaller label in order to record it. And even then, as you can see, it wasn't the same as what we know now. And in 1988, he began to change more and more. He changed his added verses, changed the length, slowed it down. He did so much to it because he couldn't figure out the song. And this is that rendition right here in 1988. It's it's different from this first and completely different from what we know about this song, Hallelujah. And incredibly, there was a musician by the name of John Cale who heard this version of the song. And he asked Leonard if he could rewrite it for him. And of course he said yes. And so John Kill made a cover of this rendition of the song. And he tried to figure it out. In fact, they say John Kill is the first person to actually figure out the song Hallelujah. And it sounded a little bit like this. But even after he recorded the song, nobody really heard about the song. He wasn't a famous artist at all. And it was only until... A broke singer by the name of Jeff Buckley, who was house-sitting for somebody just to pay the bills, heard this version of the song, and he decided to make a cover of a cover. And he sang this song, and this is the song that we, are, we know today. It's got 190 million views on YouTube. This is the famous hallelujah that first broke the song out. And Jeff Buckley recorded it with Columbia. Because Columbia heard his cover of somebody else's cover of the original song, Hallelujah. In fact, this song was recorded 10 years after the original recording of the song, Hallelujah. And now Hallelujah is known all around this world. It's, a, it's considered a masterpiece in the art world and in music theory. But the song, Hallelujah, took such a long process to get to the point where we recognize it today. And the reason why is because Hallelujah is a masterpiece, but it's a Cezanne-level masterpiece. You see, when I was writing, or when I was putting together this message, I was really struggling on whether I should speak about this or not. And the reason I struggled, and I struggled with it all week, is because the message that we heard last week by Pastor Mike was so incredibly similar to what I had here today as well. In fact, if you haven't heard it, I, I suggest that you go back and YouTube and just watch last week's message. It'll change you. But this message has been stirring inside of my chest for about three months now. And I decided that if God gave me a word, it's not my job to question the validity of the word. It's my job to deliver it. And so, in fact, we started to plan these services a few weeks back. And Pastor Mike said, hey, we should, we should try to do some kind of collaboration. Let's do a series since Pastor's not going to be speaking for a few weeks. And I was very hesitant because I, I already knew exactly what God had placed in my heart. And I didn't want the series to kind of mess it up. So we kind of brushed it off. But, in fact, God had other plans because this message lines up so perfectly. A series is exactly what he wanted. And so if Pastor Mike opened the door last week on this message It's my job this week to rip off the doorpost because this is absolutely the part two of what we dealt with last week. In Jesus' name. And so similar to the two categories of a masterpiece that we already talked about, conceptual innovation and experimental innovation, 
One that takes overnight making and the other that takes a lifetime of creating. A masterpiece is a masterpiece whether it takes a long time or a short amount of time. And spiritually, there are masterpieces that take one of those two same paths. Some that take overnight changes and the others that take years and years until they're finally completed. Leviticus 14 talks about a ceremony. The ceremony was very specific and the steps were so crucial to the actual ceremony. And it was talking about when somebody was healed of skin disease in chapter 14. And the ceremony would go something like this. If somebody had skin disease or they were healed of skin disease, they would go to the priest and they would check them out to make sure they were good. After the priest observed them, they would take two birds, two live birds. They would take cedar wood, scarlet yarn, and hyssop. They would take one of the birds and kill it, allowing the blood to, to run over fresh water. Then they would take the live bird and dip it in that bloody water with cedar, yarn, and hyssop. And then they would take that water and sprinkle it onto the individual who was previously healed. And then they would take that live bird and set it loose in the field. Now this is symbolic for you and I today. You see, I've been in these moments many times in my life in both healing and salvation, where I was cleansed by the blood and the water in Christ. You see, the hyssop represents cleansing, scarlet represents sin, and the cedar represents the pride of man. And the birds, one sacrificed and one set free or redeemed, is an example of God and us, where God was sacrificed on our behalf that we might be washed in his blood and set free as well. Jesus' name. The symbolism, excuse me, is so beautiful and so, so powerful for who we are today. But the problem is when people stop here in the chapter because the chapter continues to go on. This tends to be the point where we just say this is how God works, but that's not how God always works. And as you read past uh, continuing on into chapter 14, you see the same exact symbolic ceremonial ritual that, is, that you have to perform when mold is found in somebody's house in ancient day Israel. You see, the ceremony was the same, but it was a little more intensive this time. You see, when somebody found mold in their house, they would go to the priest in the same way. And the priest would go to their house and say, before I even look at it, I want you to empty out the entire house. So they would empty out the entire house of everything in the house. Then he would go in and inspect where the mold is. Then he would say that there is mold in this house. Let's take off every single stone and take off every bit of plaster, scrape it off the walls, take the stones and the plaster that has mold on it and throw it outside of the city. Then they would wait seven days just to watch if there's still mold. He would go back into the house, and if there was still mold in the house, what he would do is he would have them tear down the entire house, every brick, every stone, every bit of plaster. They would have to completely remove that house from the ground, throw it outside of the city, wait a couple days, go back and rebuild the house. Then finally, after they rebuilt the house, the priest would go back into that home to observe and make sure there's no mold. And when there was no more mold, then he would perform that same ritual with the two birds. Then he would do the same exact thing. You see, I have no idea how long it takes to tear down a wall, build it back up. Tear down a house, build it back up. I have no idea how long that actually takes, but I do know that it's not a short period of time, and I do know that it's not easy. You see, the testimony and the ceremony are one and the same, regardless of the person who was healed overnight versus the person who had to rebuild their entire house. 
You see, when we think about the word testimony, certain ideas and stories pop up in our mind. We start thinking about the times when, when God shocks the doctors in the hospital room. When we think about the times when people are blessed financially in a moment, we think about the times when people come into the altars with addiction and addiction falls off their back. And those are testimonies, but that's not the only type of testimony that's in the Bible. You see, we think about God raising, Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. We think about healing the blind eyes and removing of leprosy. But biblically, the symbolism and the ceremony is one and the same, whether it's an overnight healing, an overnight testimony, an overnight miracle versus one that takes a long, long time. In Jesus' name. You see, here at First Church, we don't preach and we do not believe in prosperity theology. Prosperity gospel believes that when you give, God will give back to you exactly how you want it and in a moment. We also don't believe that, hey, when you pray, God's going to answer you in that moment exactly how you want it. We don't, we don't put God in a box. His ways are not our ways. He is a mysterious God, and we do not understand exactly how and why he does what he does. But the problem is a lot of people come to church, and they think that they can put him in a math equation. They think that A plus B equals C with God. And so many people have left the church because they would come to church and they would pray and they would fast and they would still leave with unanswered prayers. And they're asking God, why in the world am I not receiving what I'm asking for? I'm doing everything right, but I'm not getting what I want. And so they would come and talk to people and good-hearted saints would come and tell them, hey, you just need to pray more. You need to have more faith when you pray. And they still don't get what they're asking for. But God's timing is not our timing. And you see, God hears every single one of our prayers. That doesn't mean to stop praying because God respects the persistent. This means, though, that the frustration over unanswered prayers isn't due to God not listening. And it's also not due to a lack of faith. If you had no faith, you wouldn't have asked it in the first place. It's because you have yet to come to a place where you can say, not my will, but thine be done. In Jesus' name. But you will say unto me, and I've asked this myself to God, what about ask, seek, and knock? What about that verse? Matthew 7, ask, and it will be given unto you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the doors will be opened unto you. The question isn't whether that verse is valid or not. The Bible is the Bible. The real question is, when we ask, what is the it that will be given unto us? When we seek, what will we actually find? And when we knock, which door will be opened unto us? You see, I've struggled with this many times because I would pray and I would fast and I wouldn't get what I'm asking for. And it takes way too long. But I found the explanation, 1 John 5 and 14. This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he will hear us. According to his will. That's when we'll, that's, that's when we'll receive. According to his will. The will of God are the only doors that open. You see... I've come to a place, an understanding that there are spiritual concepts that we need to understand when it comes to prayer specifically. You see, God does not answer every single one of our prayers because oftentimes we don't even know what we're asking for. We don't know what we're asking for, and therefore he's not going to answer. But I've also found on the flip side that God will answer your prayers even when you don't know what you're asking for as long as it's lined up with his will. You see, sometimes I would pray the right prayers, 
and God would answer them. And I look back and I say, yeah, I'd answer my prayers, but I had no idea what I was actually asking for until afterwards. You see, I remember a few years ago, we took the youth team to a, to a youth workers conference in uh, St. Louis. And I remember a man going up and started talking about how we pray over our students and the power of prayer. And he said, when you go before God in prayer over your students, you need to pray like this. God, place me in the gap. Put me in the position that when the enemy attacks our young people, make sure he has to go through me first. It's a powerful, powerful prayer. And I did pray that, and I still do. I prayed it many times. However, the first few times I prayed this prayer, I had no idea the weight of these prayers that I was praying. I had no idea what it actually meant when God places me in the gap. You see, all my life, I've faced many battles, spiritual battles. But all my life, I've never faced the enemy called depression, the spirit called depression. It wasn't a struggle of mine growing up. But when I work with these young people, I can say with the confidence that depression is one of the greatest principalities of this generation. I promise you that. If you don't know, now you know. The fact is, if you are a parent, if you are a guardian, a grandparent, and you are not covering your children and grandchildren over and attacking, resisting the spirit of depression, I'm telling you, you need to begin today because it is tormenting young people in a way you just do not understand. You see, I, I think people are typically afraid of what they don't understand. So I'll try my best to explain depression. You see, when you don't understand somebody else's struggle, it's over to oversimplify how, what they're dealing with and how they should deal with it. But you don't understand the pain and you don't understand their journey. You see, mental health is being talked about more and more in culture, but also in the church. And so this is 100% a spiritual attack. But the root of depression starts when the spiritually weak individual Loses their, in a, loses their ability to fight. You see, God talks to us in a still, small voice, but the enemy is like a roaring lion, constantly lying in our faces, constantly trying to convince us of something that isn't true. And so when the weak succumb to the voice of this roaring lion and believes in a lie, that's when depression really begins. You see, the goal of Satan has always been to take away our faith in the power of God within us. And like the Egyptians... They say, if only they knew how great they were, if only they knew how strong they were, they could overtake us. But when they convince us to believe in these lies of unworthiness, we become enslaved to the idea that we are hopeless. So depression is when an individual believes in a lie that they are worthless, hopeless, and useless, and never will be worthy. It feels like you're drowning, and you don't have the strength to reach the surface. I find that most people who face depression kind of run into one of two categories. Some, culturally now, depression is like a badge. And the people around you, when they see you with a badge, they, they try to make you feel better. They give you attention. And depression has now been romanticized in our culture. And people are forfeiting the promise of God for a little bit of empathy from the people around them. See, the first group of people are people who can live with the self-deprecating thoughts because it's worth the attention that comes with it. Now, there's another group of people who don't tell anybody, who go far, far down this road, so far that the idea is no longer good enough and now action needs to be taken place. You see, nobody knows their pain, but I promise you, there are stories. We have so many testimony services within our youth group. 
So many times we have young people come up and tell their testimony. I'm not going to tell anybody's testimony, but I can truly say, and anybody who's been a part of those knows, that depression is 100% a major player in this role in Christianity and our walk with God. I've had young people talk about, man, just, just dipping their heads underneath the bathtub, wanting to drown themselves. We had young people take bottles and bottles of pills just trying to end it all. People stabbing themselves, cutting themselves, doing everything that they can just to feel something. So I'm not exaggerating when I say this is a number one enemy attacking this generation. But I remember for an extended season of my life, a couple years back, when my life was so busy and I was getting burnt out over my responsibilities and I didn't have healthy habits to take care of my mind, I remember that season of my life I began to battle the spirit of depression. And as usual, it always starts off small, but it begins to grow inside of me. It grew and grew, and I would pray, and when I pray, it would release and leave me for a moment. But the weight of life didn't release, and so it would come back. And so for those who fight depression, the nights are the absolute worst. I try to drown out these thoughts killing me on the inside. I try to drown them out with whatever I could possibly drown them out with. But it's when you're alone with your own thoughts, those are the worst times. I remember the worst night when I laid in bed at four in the morning with my wife sleeping next to me. And these voices were so loud, I could almost feel the weight of them. It's like trying to go to sleep with boom boxes in your ears. I couldn't fall asleep. And I wanted to fall asleep so bad. But these voices of hopelessness, these voices telling me to give up, were just so blaringly loud, I couldn't ignore them. And I would just lay there at four in the morning with tears rushing down my face because I couldn't do anything. The only thing I could do is whisper, Jesus. But nothing happened. Eventually, I would fall asleep. And I woke up the next morning still fighting that same battle, still at war. And eventually, eventually, the depression left me through lots of prayer, through lots of self-care, through lots of personal growth and seeking help. Finally, it left me. But I remember afterwards, I would pray and I would ask God, why in the world did I have to go through this season of my life? Why in the world couldn't you remove it the same way you did before? Why couldn't you heal me in that same exact way? I was frustrated. You see, when we go through the Bible, there's a lot of symbolism biblically. And I I love finding these patterns and and these things that, that really speak to us when you plug it in the right place. And And so something that I really do find interesting that a lot of people find boring are numbers. But when you go through Scripture, you'll see a bunch of numbers that kind of pop up all over Scripture. And one of those numbers is the number 40. And so I tried to figure out what was so special about 40. In fact, if you read the Bible, 40 is listed 146 times throughout Scripture. The life of Moses can be broken down into 40-day and 40-year segments. During Moses' life, he lived the first 40 years as a prince in Egypt. The next 40 years, he was a shepherd in the desert. And then following that, he was a prophet leading the people of Israel into the promised land. Moses also was on Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights two times. And both times he came back with the law from God. The prophet Jonah warned ancient Nineveh for 40 days about their destruction until they finally turned away. The prophet Ezekiel laid on his right side for 40 days to symbolize the pain and the weight of Judah's sin. Elijah went for 40 days without food or water. Jesus was tempted in the, in the, in the wilderness for 40 days before his ministry actually began. God fled to the earth for 40 days and 40 nights until it was finally time to start anew. 
You see, so what's so special about this number 40? Why is it so significant scripturally, especially when you talk about a length of time? Why is it so special? And so in order to understand the number 40, we need to start with the number 39. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four 24 says, and this is Paul, five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. In other words, he was, he was lashed 195 times, but in five different occasions, 39 times apiece. And so the question is, what was so significant about 39? Why did he get, he, he get whipped 39 times? But this was custom and tradition. You, when you whip somebody, when you, when you lash somebody, you only did it 39 times because they found out that on the 40th lash, the person would die. So what does 40 represent? 40 represents death. You see, in each of these examples, something had to die before moving on to the next stage of the process and of the story. If 39 represents the limit of man's capacity and strength, 40 represents the place where our flesh and our strength dies. You see, Moses was a prince, and he had to die to the idea of a prince before he could become a shepherd. And as a shepherd, he had to die to the idea of a shepherd before he could become a prophet. Every time somebody fasted for 40 days, the flesh inside of them had to die and be overcome. Jesus didn't start his ministry until 40 days of prayer and fasting. Moses didn't receive the law until the last 40th day. Nineveh turned away after 40 days. And God allowed the earth to be surrounded by water for 40 days until it was completely cleansed of wickedness. You see, in order for God to elevate you to the next stage of your walk with him, you must come to the end of yourself, where your strength is no longer good enough and God's carrying you on the rest of the way. You see, people who grow in Christ look like Moses. Their lives look just like Moses. One stage to death onto the next stage until death. This is the process of true Christianity. Are you seeking out the next thing that's going to kill the flesh inside of you so that God can lift you up to the next stage and place in life? You see, so many people in this world are like Moses in his first 40 years. They're trying to reach princehood. They're trying to be princes in this world. But God's saying the next stage is not a prince. It's not a king. It's a shepherd. And from there, I'll make you a prophet. Romans 5 and 3 says, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out on our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Philippians 3.10 says, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection, and watch this, and participation in his suffering. Ladies and gentlemen, there is absolutely a testimony in our sufferings. Testimonies are not solely made up of overnight miracles, and they're not made up of momentary perspective shifts. Not every testimony can be marked down on your calendar as something to look back upon. There are testimonies in the process of our suffering. There are seasons that God has taken you through, and just watching you go through it is just as much of a testimony. In Jesus' name. You see, when God takes you into the wilderness and your praise still reaches heaven, that's just as good of a testimony. When everything in your life 
says you should give up right now, but you're still coming to church on a Sunday, still lifting his name up high. I'm telling you, that's just as much of a testimony as when God delivered you on the first time. It's still a testimony. You see, overnight miracles testify of the power of God. But long-suffering miracles testify of the sustenance of God. Matthew 16, 24. And Jesus told his disciples, if anybody would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus' name. You see, the cross in biblical times was not a symbol of hope. When we see a cross, we, we have a completely different perspective of what, when they saw a cross. We know the story behind the cross, but for them, the cross was a torturing device. It wasn't hope. It didn't even represent death. It represented a long and painful death. And Luke 14, 27, it says, And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. If you don't know the cross on your back, you cannot claim yourself to be a disciple of Jesus. If you don't know what's killing your flesh right now, you do not have the ability to claim yourself to be a disciple of Jesus. And so this is so important. Even when you talk about households and leaders in households, fathers, father figures. You see, when Aaron, the high priest of Israel, when his two sons offended God and God sent fire down to kill them in a moment, here in Leviticus 16 and 6, what did Aaron have to do? God told Aaron, you shall offer a bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself and to make an atonement of himself and for his household. You see, Aaron didn't sin. Aaron didn't do anything wrong. But he still had to sacrifice on behalf of his children. You see, this is the weight of being a leader. This is the weight of being a disciple. You have to carry and burden the sins of other people who are following after you. And so the question is, in a society where ease of living is the end goal, what is your cross? The world tells you to make sure your life goes out as easy as it possibly can. But as a follower of Christ, what is that cross? You see, we're taught to remove the most painful things and taught to make life so simple and smooth. But God is calling us into the wilderness. He's calling us to a burden and he's calling us to a place of death and of suffering. Jesus wasn't the only one who died on a cross. You see, crucifixion was common back then. He wasn't the first and he wasn't the last. In fact, it wasn't uncommon to be in your bedroom, to be in your living room, looking out the window and watching a mob of people walk by, surrounding somebody carrying and burdening a cross to their death. That was a common thing back then. And you know what they would say to themselves? They would look at that person and say, I'm never going to see him again. And that's the same exact thing that happens today. When I see somebody burdening a cross burdening something on behalf of Jesus, I can look at that individual and say to myself, I'm never going to see that person again. Because at the end of that cross, they're going to be completely different. You see, did God not begin a good work in you the second the first moldy brick was removed from your life? It doesn't feel like a miracle, but it's a miracle in the making. It's not a Picasso, it's a Cezanne. You're still a masterpiece. You're just in the process right now. The only problem comes is when people give up, when it gets too hard. After the first break, they're saying, it's too heavy. I can't do this anymore. It's when people lay down their cross because it's getting too heavy. If they only knew, 
You see, we see the cross, but God sees the empty tomb in Jesus' name. You see, people need to stop. People need to stop trying to take the cross off their back, trying to leave the wilderness. You see, people pray. They come to these altars and they pray and say, God, remove this burden from my back. Take me out of this situation. Take me out of the spiritual wilderness that is killing me. But the wilderness is where God sustains you. The wilderness is where God speaks to you. And it's in the wilderness where God feeds you. We need to come to a place where we love the wilderness. Jesus' name. Not for the sake of the wilderness, but because of what the wilderness is going to bring out of you. You see, when John the Baptist preached and people heard his voice, a voice crying from the wilderness, they didn't simply hear words. They felt the weights of the wilderness when he spoke. You see, just the fact that you can still come and worship is a testimony. Would we even know Job had God answered Job's first request? You think you've been praying for a miracle, but in reality, you've been praying away your testimony. If God answered your prayer the first time, you wouldn't have the story that you have right now. You're coming in here saying, God, remove this from my back. And he's saying, you're not done yet. Jesus' name. If the musicians can come here in a second. You see, when I go through the scripture and I, and I go through the story of Jesus on the cross, I find a man who's not mentioned many times, but he has an incredible, incredible story, and he's very special to me personally. There's a man by the name of Simon of Cyrene. And there's not much said about him in the Bible. But what we do know is that he was pulled aside and commanded to carry the cross of Jesus with him because Jesus couldn't carry it himself to Calvary. But there's more to the story, and I've always wondered, man, what happened to this guy, Simon? But there's more to the story of Simon. You just have to find the right clues. You see, there's another man in Scripture, and he's very, very obscure. There's only two verses about him. But he's mentioned twice in the Bible, and it's best to start off with the second mention. It's in Romans 16 and 13. This is on the last book of the book of Romans, the last chapter in the book of Romans, when Paul is saying, hey, I want you to greet Rufus for me, chosen by the Lord and his mother, who is like a mother to me. And the question is, man, who is this guy Rufus, and why is Paul calling him out at the end of his book just to say what's up? You see, the fact is, the world should have never known Rufus. We should never be talking about Rufus. Paul should have never known him, and it should have never been mentioned in the Bible. But something happened many, many years previous on the day when Jesus died that changed Rufus forever. You see, the first mention of Rufus happens in Mark 15 and 21 when he talks about Rufus's father. It says, when a certain man named Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing away from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. You see, Rufus was Simon's son. I truly believe when I look at the life and story of Simon, I don't think that Simon would have ever known or followed Jesus if it wasn't for somebody forcing a cross upon his back. But in that moment, Simon felt the weight of sin that Jesus was carrying, but he also came in contact with the blood of God in that moment. 
And as he helped Jesus, the son of God, carry and drag that cross up the hill, something changed inside of Simon. Something moved inside of him. But it wasn't just Simon that was changed. It was his boy as well. I can just imagine it. That day, Simon and his two sons just trying to make it through the city, trying to get back home to mom. They didn't know what was going on. They didn't know the commotion. What was all, what, they, don't, they have no idea. But somebody just grabbed his daddy and put him on a cross. And there goes Rufus just watching his dad carry the, ki- carry the cross up the hill. And he's saying, what in the world is happening right now? But in that moment, Simon was changed, as was Rufus. You see, for every parent in this room, it might seem so burdensome walking through the wilderness, carrying the cross on your back. But the fact is, there are people watching you right now. There are people looking at you right now. They say, I don't know why he's carrying the cross. It was just forced upon them. But it means something to me. And it's going to change their lives forever. In Jesus' name. If you could just stand with me in this moment. As you make your way up to these altars, we're going to go into a place of prayer. But I remember yesterday, I was standing right there, and I was just praying about today's service. And I said, God, I know what you want me to say, but I want you to tell me why it's so important for the church. And God spoke to me, and he said, if the church could recognize and learn how to love the cross and the wilderness just as much as they love the blessings. I could elevate you to another level that you've never seen before. I could take you places you've never been before. I'm still willing to do a new thing inside of you, but you've got to be willing to do a new thing inside of me. There was a Monday night a few months back when God really placed this on my heart. I was standing right there and, and God spoke to me. He, he just put a prayer inside of my mouth. I said, God, I don't know what I should pray right now, but I'm asking you to place a prayer inside of me. And I began to pray and I asked God, I said, God, I'm asking you, Jesus' name, to put me back into the wilderness. I don't love the wilderness, but I know what it's going to bring out of me. You see, people want the anointing fire of God on their lives, but they're afraid of the heat. In Jesus' name, they're going to sing and we're going to pray. And I'm asking you, to come to this place and say, God, I accept the suffering that's on, on my life right now. If it's not your will, keep me here. And I'll sustain myself through it as you sustain me in this moment in the name of Jesus. God, I don't know why, but I don't need to know why because I know you're good. I'm asking you, God, to bless us in the midst of darkness, in the midst of the wilderness, with the cross on my back. Whatever is going to kill this flesh, I accept it in the name of Jesus. Smile.